Hello once again, and welcome to our next episode of the Health Disparities Podcast. I am Dr. Bonnie Simpson-Mason, and this week we are recording our conversations at the National Harbor in Maryland, where we are enjoying a packed program of speakers and workshops at the annual Movement is Life Caucus. Today's podcast features Dr. Claire Pomeroy, who is the president and CEO of the Lasker Foundation in New York City. An infectious disease expert by training, Dr. Pomeroy held professorships at the University of Minnesota, University of Kentucky, and the University of California, Davis, where she was also Dean of the School of Medicine. She is a longtime advocate for patients, especially for those with HIV and AIDS and in the public health arena. She has a special interest in healthcare policy with a focus on the importance of the social determinants of health, and we will focus on that today. Dr. Pomeroy, thank you so much for joining us today. Delighted to be with you. Wonderful. Well, um, let's clarify just at a very basic one-on-one level for our listeners. What are the social determinants of health? And tell us how the social determinants of health um, influence your role at the Lasker Foundation. The social determinants of health are all the life circumstances into which we are born, work, play, age. And it turns out that they're really powerful drivers of our health status. A lot of people think that the health status of an individual or a person or a community is determined by going to the doctor or going to the hospital and getting clinical care. Uh, But it turns out that only about 10% of our health status is determined by clinical care. 10% only? Only 10%. And it is these other factors like the social determinants of health are much more powerful drivers and determinants of uh, how, how well we are doing um, in our physical health as well as our mental health and our ability to sort of thrive in life. It turns out that things like race, ethnicity, gender, mm-hmm. socioeconomic status, living in a safe neighborhood, having access to good foods, And one of the ones that I find most fascinating is it turns out that being part of a community, Mm -hmm. feeling a sense of social support, something that we call social cohesion, is one of the most powerful drivers and determinants of our health. Social cohesion, I love love that. That's a new term for me today. So, So how does the Lasker foundation support efforts to you know integrate the social determinants of health into your mission the mission of the lasker foundation is to inspire support okay for medical research mm-hmm. and one of my messages is that the values of our society and the values of medicine and the values of us as scientists and clinicians are reflected in the kind of research we do the kind of research questions that we ask, the kind of research that we care about, uh, the kind of uh, research results that we teach our students about. And and so at the Lasker Foundation, we celebrate the full range of research from basic discovery to clinical trials to what we call public service, which is making sure that the 
benefits of medical research actually reach everybody and improve health for all. I'll just give you one recent example. Sure. Um, this year, uh, when we gave out the Lasker Award for Public Service, we gave it to Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance. Okay. And they make sure that uh, children in underdeveloped countries around the globe have access to basic vaccines and the life-saving benefits of those vaccines. Okay. Now, here's an example where we have lots of research that shows that vaccines are life-saving for children, right? Exactly. And over the past few decades, they've been disproportionately available to rich countries and not so available to underdeveloped countries. Mm -hmm. And so Gavi works to make sure that everyone gets those benefits. Now, the irony here, right, okay. is that many parents in rich countries like the United States are now saying they don't want to vaccinate their children. And I will tell you that one of the most powerful statements I ever heard was from Melinda Gates, the wife of Bill Gates, who yes. runs the Gates Foundation. She said to me, I went to Africa and I saw mothers walking for hours to bring their children to get vaccinated. I come to California and I see mothers working to avoid having their children vaccinated. And I think this is one of the messages that the Lasker Foundation is trying to say. We have evidence of things that can save people's lives. Right. We need to make sure they benefit people. And we have lots of evidence that the social determinants of health, if they are adequately addressed, save lives. So how do we create that shift, Dr. Pomeroy? It sounds, you know, that sounds like a huge uh, undertaking, certainly it is, to help us shift our mindset in the U.S. to one that wants to address the social determinants of health as being part of the solution. And I know you're an advocate for transformative health care by examining and, and channeling resources more towards the social determinants of health. Um, maybe you'd like to share some details about how that could actually happen, maybe your thoughts on that. So, you know, we spend more than any other country At, in the world any other on, country. On, on medical care, yes. what we label clinical care. And, and it, however, if you um, want to address those social determinants of health, that money has been in the bucket of social services. Um, what we call upstream prevention, upstream determinants of wellness. If you add up the amount of money that we spend on clinical care with the amount that we spend on social services to address the upstream determinants of health, actually, the United States spends about, that total is about in the middle of all developed countries. Okay. So this is not a question of spending more money on health. It is a question of how we choose to spend our money. Okay. Do we want to spend it downstream on end-of-life care, on ICU care, or do we want to spend it upstream to prevent some of these things? Let me give you an example. Sure. Do we want to spend it taking care of diabetic ketoacidosis, diabetes out of control in an intensive care unit, 
Or would we like to invest upstream so that we have anti-obesity programs for kids and we have diabetic cooking classes for adults so that we can prevent that diabetic ketoacidosis from ever having in the, happening in the first place? It turns out that not only is that a better approach for the patient, right? It's, so it's a good thing uh, for the patient. It also is more cost effective. So I believe that one of the reasons that we have to change our approach to a more social determinants of health model is that we cannot continue in this country right. to spend the amount of money that we're spending. That's not sustainable. And by the way, even though we spend more money than any other country, we have some pretty dismal outcomes. Exactly. We rank very low in maternal mortality among developed nations. We rank low in life expectancy. And furthermore, we have huge disparities yes. that are shameful. So to some folks, I talk about we need to adopt this new model because it is the right thing to do from sort of a social justice, um, caring about your neighbor point of view. Sure. To other people, I say, there's a real economic argument about why we need to do this um, for the economy of our nation. So I'm hearing, and tell me how effectively those conversations go, if we're shifting more towards the upstream prevention, wellness, investing in health versus investing in the 10% of health care on the back end. How is that being received? I started talking about the social determinants of health probably 20 years ago. Okay. Um, and at that time, no one was talking about them. Sure. And at that time, I mostly got blank stares. Like, you know, no, we need to, you know, invent new medicines and fancy surgical techniques. And right. All of which are great, um, um, but they didn't have the and we need to address the social determinants of health. Now, many more people are talking about the social determinants of health. We have a great deal of evidence that if we were to shift this model from our traditional model to a more social determinants, that that saves money and improves outcome. We have lots of evidence, okay. but it has predominantly been in pilot programs, demonstration projects, individual philanthropy funded uh, types of activities. Um, so when you ask how do, how, do, how do those conversations go, I think there are people, many people who say, yes, that makes sense, but I don't know how to make this, this big change. Hey, there are a lot of incentives to maintain the status quo, right? There's a lot of Absolutely. money in healthcare. Absolutely, a lot. There's a lot of money in healthcare, um, and there are a lot of, of, of people who, who have you know, jobs in the, in the current system, and, and change can, can be threatening. So I go back to we are not financially sustainable right. in healthcare and we have to improve our outcomes. I think we're making progress. What I want to see is more systematic approaches to um, adopting a social determinants model. So that sounds like that's gonna take a collaborative approach between 
uh, the federal government, industry, private hospital systems, do you see that being actually achievable? Because if we're going to scale the investment on a, of the social determinants of health or in the social determinants of health, it's going to take all those parties. Is that realistic? Do you feel that that could actually happen? So it has to be realistic <laughs> okay. because we have to change. Sure. Um, yes. It, it, you are exactly right. This will require intersectoral collaboration. Yep. New new partnerships, new coming together. We're going to have to, you know, bring the clinical care community together with policymakers, yes. together with the criminal justice system, com uh, t together with faith-based institutions, together with our schools and many more partners to do this. I believe that we can do it. I believe that we must do it. But I'll give you an example of why it's so challenging. Sure. So um, I ran a large academic health hospital for um, uh, many years. And the fact is that you have to have financial results that allow you to continue to operate that hospital. And if I envisioned starting a um, nutrition counseling program and physical education program for underserved kids, there would be no ROI on that program. There would not. But if I bought a new PET scanner, there would be great cash flow to the hospital. Exactly. Now, it's easy to say, well, you should care about your mission and not worry about the money, but in the classic saying, you know, no money, no mission, no mission, no money, right? And so to continue to do the good, I had to pay attention yes. to the finances of that hospital. And so what we have to do, I believe, is, is switch to a longer-term perspective on how we invest our money in health, yes. the full range of health. Yes. Um, and, and as we do that and as we see... Um, advances, I believe that the progress will accelerate. So, so does that lend itself to, you know, one of the phrases you've used, health in all policies? Um, talk about what that means and maybe some policy examples that could help us see that this could work. <laughs> so health in all policies is a call to understand that every time we make a law or a regulation or a business decision yes. that, um, that that has health implications. That's not been a, the traditional mindset. So if you make a criminal justice decision, are you thinking about the health implications of that? So we have a criminal justice system that means that one out of every three black men will spend time in jail or prison in their life. That has dramatic health implications, and yet when we calculate the cost of, of, of our, in our criminal justice system, we don't think about those health implications. Yes. So health in all policies is a call to think about the health implications of every decision we're making. I will give you um, uh, a couple of examples, if I may, because sure. I think this is, this is really important. Okay. When we give tax breaks to grocery stores to locate in the inner city. That's good for that grocery store chain, 
But that's also good for the community that they've moved into because now healthy food is available. We should calculate in that benefit to, yes. um, to our decision about how often we're going to make those kind of tax break policies. Mm -hmm. This is not always easy or politically palatable to many people. One of, I think, the most dramatic examples in this country is the implications of our policies on gun ownership and gun control. The United States is a huge outlier in the number of people that die through gun violence. And yet, we have not thought always about those health implications of our gun laws uh, as, as we make those decisions. I think there are examples where we have thought about the health implications, though. Okay. And to me, one of the most exciting things is the trend towards taxes on sugared beverages right. that many cities are imposing. Right. And for a very small tax, you can change people's behavior and maybe they'll drink more water and less sugared beverages. And by the way, many cities are taking that soda tax revenue and using it to invest in pre-K education um, or build parks. Sure. And we know that education, uh, especially of children, and, and physical exercise, because parks are available, will further increase our health. And so, so you get a compounding of the benefits from what seems like a very small decision to put a half cent tax on a, on a bottle of soda. Right. And you make a, a very important point because the manufacturers of these sugar drinks have to, you know, be pushing back just a little bit, but yet we can see how a small change, we're not impeding their, their, you know, their model, their revenue model, but we are in trying, we're making a big impact on health yeah. with that small tweak. And as, as you say, there is a huge incentive in those businesses to continue soda sales, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> but isn't it interesting to watch how some of the companies have responded? And so they've started to bottle, go into the bottled water business, exactly. right? Yep. And so what you can do is say, this is a, a value for society that we're endorsing with this soda tax. So we don't want childhood obesity in the, in the, at the levels that we have. And, and businesses will make logical decisions. They will respond to, to those incentives. So, you know, it's easy for us to look at a company and, and say, well, it's their behaviors that are causing all these problems. But we as members of society and our, and our political leaders, we're sending messages to business and we need to think, take the responsibility to send those messages so that businesses will respond. Well, and we, we've talked in several of our podcasts about um, empowering our listeners to use their voice to say, maybe I have, I live in a food desert or, you know, maybe the only drinks available are these sugary drinks. So we, we I love this because it gives our listeners another opportunity. Aha, maybe I can talk to my alderman or my council person or even my legislator about how effective this uh, this tax has been, even in my own neighborhood. Because now I see more bottled water options. Exactly, and 
Every time someone has the opportunity to vote, they should ask the candidates, what are your policies on this? What are your policies on gun control? What are your policies on tax breaks to get inner city uh, companies to come in? You know, as let's all take the responsibility to learn the candidates' positions on those things and, and then take the responsibility to vote for the people who will make good change. Right, and hold their feet to the fire. Well, Dr. Pomeroy, it sounds like you and I could talk all day yeah. <laughs> about these concepts, um, but, I, but I really um, would like to just summarize and, and appreciate um, you're sharing some of these, some of these, you know, key elements with us. Um, number one, starting out earlier in our conversation, that really only 10% of our health status is determined by the health care that we we receive in a physician's office at the hospital and urgent care center. That the social determinants of health comprise the majority of that 90%. I hope that's an aha moment for many of us in the audience because that was huge. Um, I really do see the future of um, solving our healthcare crisis in the U.S. as being uh, collaborative. So the point you made about intersectional collaboration um, is key. That's what we're doing here at the Movement is Life Caucus, having this multidisciplinary approach and conversation to um, discussing healthcare disparities, race and racism, and how it affects our um, not just health equity but our our most uh, vulnerable populations. You know the health in all policies approach, you know, looking at every policy that's made through a health lens. We talked yesterday, we were on Capitol Hill uh, listening to how, you know, some of the value-based care decisions and, and regulations have actually exacerbated health uh, health care disparities, and we've not achieved health equity, but we've widened the gap. So looking, at, I think that's a critical component that um, I'm sure with leaders such as yourself, um, sounding the alarm on making sure we're using that health lens to influence policy uh, and regulation at the you know, local, state, and federal levels, and that's the key to being successful. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Pomeroy. We, 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 got, we squeezed every ounce out of you that we could. Thank you so much for being here. It was just fun, and it's an important message, so thank you for sharing it. Absolutely. So um, thank you again for joining us for the Health Disparities Podcast. You can follow us at movementislifecaucus.com and all leading podcast services for more conversations around health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. These are the people who are passionate and we're happy to spend time with them and sharing them with you. I am Dr. Bonnie Simpson-Mason. See you next time.